Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Today's case is one of those senseless, unnecessary crimes that inflicted a lifetime of pain on the Lewis family of Garden Grove. Their daughter, Mary Irene Lewis, was born on November 24th, 1978 in Orange County, California. She went to Huntington Beach High School and was called the apple of her family's eye. She was known to be kind-hearted and warm with a silly sense of humor. And she also was considered an advocate for those picked on by bullies at school. One example of this was given in an interview with Paula Zahn by her sister. And in the interview, her sister talks about a boy who had Down syndrome at Huntington Beach High School. This boy was teased and humiliated for something that he couldn't control. That bullying behavior wasn't something that Mary supported. And she really walked the walk and talked the talk. She backed up this young boy and pulled him under her wing, and really befriended him. And that's the type of person Mary Lewis was. That brings us to Tuesday, June 20th, 1995, a cool summer night of 70 degrees in Garden Grove, California. And you know that I searched the weather almanac to check the temperature that day, and it was in fact 70 degrees. The stillness of that night was disturbed when a local man places an urgent call to 911. It's about a young girl lying on her back in the darkened street who appears to have been a victim of a hit and run. According to the caller, he discovered the girl between the stop sign and limit line on Acacia Avenue where it intersects with Brookhurst Way after he had heard a muffled scream around 1 a.m., Garden Grove Police Officer Rex Bond responds to the call and is first on scene. And it's here that he finds 16-year-old Mary lying in one of three massive pools of her own blood. In Officer Bond's 2017 interview with Paula Zahn, it's clear that the sight of Mary Lewis near death on that fateful night in 1995 still haunts him. And I'm just going to describe for you, Paige, and our listeners what I witnessed when I watched that interview. He's sitting there with his eyes open, almost staring as if he's re 
imagining the horrific scene in front of him. And his voice catches as he describes it. He says about Mary, quote, her eyes were open and she was breathing, but like somebody who was really looking for air, unquote. Mary may have been conscious, but she was desperately fighting for her life and unable to speak, let alone answer any of the officer's questions. Officer Bond comforted Mary as the two waited for EMS to arrive. Because remember, he is the first one on scene. There's no one else but him and Mary and the man that called 911. The scene and the picture that's being painted in my mind of what that officer saw that night, it's harrowing. And if you really break it down for this officer, what do do they do? They sign up and give their life to a life of service to serve and protect their communities. And in this instance, he has this 16, almost 17-year-old girl who's all but lifeless. And he's trying to comfort and serve and protect her, but it's out of his control until EMS gets there. Officer Bond begins inspecting her wounds more closely, looking to see where the blood's coming from. And that's when he realizes things aren't adding up. Mary's injuries weren't consistent with what someone would receive after being struck by a moving vehicle. When someone is hit by a car, they typically sustain injuries like scrapes, bruises, and broken bones. On top of that, there's typically other physical evidence found at these crime scenes, like broken glass from the car's windshield. None of that was present at this scene. Instead, Mary's injuries indicated she had been repeatedly and viciously stabbed on her face, torso, several areas of her upper body, including her carotid artery, and her extremities like her hands and her arms that suggested defensive wounds. Paramedics soon arrive and get straight to business, cutting away Mary's blood-soaked clothes, leaving them in a pile on the street before loading her in the ambulance and transporting her to a local hospital. Meanwhile, Officer Bond is joined by homicide detectives to help investigate the scene now that it's clear a crime, attempted murder, has taken place. The amount of Mary's blood and the fact that there were a total of three pools of blood suggests to detectives that the crime itself happened at that particular spot. And to reiterate what I said earlier, the spot I'm referring to is between the stop sign and the limit line at the corner of Acacia Avenue and Burkehurst Way. It's a three-way stop, and it's right at the end of an apartment complex. If what you described hadn't already explained this, I feel like it's very telling that the homicide unit was already on the case at this point. They knew when they were looking at this that Mary might not survive this attack and that they needed to begin an investigation from a homicide standpoint right away. Detectives canvassed the neighborhood and searched the surrounding areas, but they weren't able to find a single witness or any physical evidence left behind by the offender. But remember, it's 1 a.m. on a Tuesday. People aren't out, people are sleeping, and it's a dark corner by an apartment complex. It's not a busy, bustling area. The detectives are left without any evidence, and they begin taking their final crime scene photos and packing up Mary's personal effects. 
the pile of clothes that the paramedics cut off her before taking her to the hospital. And that's when Officer Bond uncovers Mary's pager bundled amongst her clothes. And as fate would have it, as he picks the pager up and scrolls through the numbers on the tiny screen, it beeps with a new page. Now remember, it's 1995 and cell phones are scarce. The officers have to radio their sergeant at headquarters and have him use the landline to dial the phone number that paged Mary. James Lewis is on the other end of the phone. And he's startled and instantly worried by receiving a phone call from the police. James questions why the police have his daughter's pager. The sergeant asks James Lewis to describe his daughter, and James describes his daughter, including her dark, wavy hair and amber-colored eyes. A perfect match to the description of Mary. The sergeant refrains from sharing details about Mary's attack, but he lets James know that his daughter Mary had been injured in an accident and was taken to the local hospital. Before ending the call, James Lewis asks the sergeant about the condition of Mary's car, which was actually the family's white two-door Nissan Sentra. My takeaway from this part of the father's conversation with the officer is that he's under the assumption that Mary had been in a car accident. Like I mentioned, the sergeant was vague about Mary's condition and didn't share how she was injured. So it makes sense that that is where the father's mind would go. The sergeant couldn't answer that question though, because none of the responding officers, detectives, were aware that Mary had a car or even had been driving in the first place. Investigators now realize wherever Mary's car had gone, the offender most likely went with it. And now a word from today's sponsor. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The Lewis family's white Nissan Sentra. And police now have a theory. Mary may have been the victim of a carjacking. Meanwhile, Mary has been rushed into emergency surgery for her life threatening injuries. Her parents race to the hospital to be by her side. They're worried. They know their daughter has been injured in some sort of accident. But Mary's parents have no idea how dire the situation actually is. And that part really broke my heart as I watched her mother talk about or relive this horrible night as she's talking to Paula Zahn. In that same conversation with Paula Zahn, Mary's mother, Regina, tells Paula that she assumed Mary had broken her leg or something of that nature. And it just goes to show how in the dark her parents were. So you can imagine her and her husband's shock to learn from Mary's nurse that Mary was, quote, in grave condition, unquote. Distraught and completely caught off guard, Regina and James only had moments to process this news before Mary's surgeons approached them. 
Regina will never forget the moment stating that the two surgeons' words are, quote, engraved in her heart. They said, quote, Mary's vital signs are incompatible with life and that Mary had been officially pronounced dead. Mary's father, James, instantly fell to the floor upon hearing the surgeon's words. Regina was inconsolable and had to figure out a way to tell her three other children, Robert, Anita, and Chris, that their baby sister had died. The family had more questions than answers. Who killed their baby? Why? How could this happen? There's a quote from Regina's conversation with Paula Zahn that felt like a gut punch when I heard it. She said, quote, stabbed? How could she be stabbed? She was out with her friends, unquote. The answer to that question is what police were determined to find out. The coroner soon performed an autopsy and it confirmed what everyone had already known. Mary had been stabbed upwards of 12 times all over her body. Among her injuries, her carotid artery and her spinal cord had been slashed in rapid succession. The coroner acknowledged that Mary's attack was overkill because, quote, one or two of the stabbings would have been sufficient to cause her death, unquote. Unfortunately, no new evidence came from the autopsy. As a result, investigators focused their efforts on retracing Mary's steps on the day of her murder. Regina told authorities that Mary had spent the day with her friends, Minnie and Letty, and was supposed to be home by her 10 p.m. curfew. But we know that didn't happen. She missed her curfew by a few hours, actually. Mary called to let her mom know that she'd be late because she was at a nearby Taco Bell with friends. She then assured her mom that she'd be home before midnight. But Regina's mother's intuition led her to believe that something was not quite right with Mary during that phone call. She sensed an uneasiness and discomfort in Mary's voice. Regina kept that thought in the back of her head and acknowledged that she planned to talk to Mary about it when she returned home. We now know that the mother-daughter duo never had the opportunity because that was the last time Regina ever spoke to Mary. Investigators then set their sights on Mary's best friend, Minnie. They brought her into the police station and had her fill them in on Mary's whereabouts during the day. Here's what she had to say. Mary picked up Minnie around three in the afternoon on the 19th because, Paige, if you remember, Mary was found at one in the morning on the 20th. And then the two girls drove to pick up their mutual friend, Letty. The three girls then drove to a local park to meet up with a 21-year-old guy named Richie and his friends. It suggested that the teens were partying, drinking beer, and having a good time. Mary and Richie were in the initial stages of getting to know each other. You know what I'm talking about, where you're just excited to see the other person. You don't really know one another that well. But it's clear from... Mary's friends that both were interested. We used to say, oh, we're talking or they're just talking. <laughs> Whatever that even meant, but that's how that's what we said. And back in 1995, it seems to kind of be along the same lines as what you were just saying, because Richie and Mary exchanged numbers and everything seemed to be good and right in the world. 
Letty then used Mary's car to pick up some of her friends that we later learned were affiliated with an Orange County gang. The two groups partied at the park until 8 p.m. when many wanted to leave, according to a petition to the California Parole Board written by the Lewis family themselves. Mary had had a beer at this point and didn't feel comfortable to drive, let alone drive others. Mary then asked Letty to drive and Letty agreed. Mary fell asleep in the back seat while Minnie was dropped off at her home and Letty drove to her own apartment. Upon their arrival, Mary wanted to contact Richie to meet up with him since he had paged her. But Letty's sister was on the phone and wouldn't get off the phone and let Mary use it to call Richie. And this is totally relatable to anyone with a younger sibling who didn't grow up with cell phones and depended on that landline to get in touch with your friends. I never really gave it much thought, but in 90s terms, teenagers today have their own phone line. Like growing up in the 90s, if you had your own phone number or phone line in your bedroom, separate from like your siblings or the rest of the house, you had it made and you were probably kind of rich. That caused some serious arguments. Yeah, I don't think any household with multiple siblings ever got away from that argument. Back to Mary's story. Without any other way to get in touch with Richie while at Letty's apartment, Mary left, leaving Letty at her home with her sister to go call Richie. Now, authorities have a new person of interest, Richie. Because Mary's friends didn't know Richie's last name or contact information, remember, this is 1995. There's no Facebook. There's no Instagram to search through someone's mutual friends. So investigators had to get creative. They looked through the numbers on Mary's pager. They eventually got into contact with Richie and had him come down to the station under the pretense that Mary had been hurt. They didn't tell him anything else until he was sitting in their interrogation room. And it's here that Richie learned Mary had been murdered. According to Richie, He and Mary did plan to meet up again that night, but she never called him. When police questioned him on what he was doing the rest of the night, he said he was with other friends. And while he's in the interrogation room, he gave police permission to search his car. The police thoroughly search it and they don't find any traces of blood or anything suspicious. While that's happening, they're checking into Richie's alibi. And it's confirmed. His alibi checks out. As a result, Richie is cleared and the police are left with no new leads. This is such a blow to the case. Of course, Richie is innocent and that's what we want him presumed as, but we had a lead and it didn't work out. So now all they have is a 16-year-old had been murdered, and there are no leads at this particular time. That's exactly what happened. For about a week, the investigators were back at square one. They didn't have any new information and were at a loss for what happened and why this happened to Mary Lewis. That's when the Garden Grove Police received a tip from the El Cajon Police Department. That's in San Diego County, about 100 miles south of Garden Grove. For anyone that's unfamiliar with 
California geography. Now, the El Cajon Police Department said that they found Mary's car at an apartment complex. And they didn't realize it was a stolen car until they ran the license plate. And according to the El Cajon Police Sergeant Tom Gay, he describes this apartment complex as, quote, a low-rent apartment complex that's a common gang hangout, unquote. According to the El Cajon police, the car had been stripped of some parts, including its wheels and its fenders, and that's what caught their attention initially. They were surprised, however, that the car still had its license plates. When they ran the license plate number and discovered that it not only was a stolen car, but had been connected to a homicide, they knew right away that they had to get in touch with the Garden Grove Police Department. When Garden Grove Police Department sent one of their own investigators down for further investigating what this car could be doing there, he too thought it was unusual that the car had been stripped, but the license plates had been left. He mentioned that it was almost as if it was done as an afterthought, as if the offender's initial motive wasn't to rob the car and strip it for its parts. To investigators, This appeared to be an afterthought. The police then questioned the tenant whose assigned spot Mary's car was ditched in. This woman remains unnamed in all the resources, but according to officers, they asked if she knew anything about the car and how it got there. Initially, this woman was of no help to investigators. In fact, she refused point blank to help them to answer any of their questions. But... As investigators spent a little more time in her apartment, she did relay the information I'm about to tell you. According to her, a few gang members had dropped off the car and never came back for it. But investigators could tell that she knew more than what she was telling them. And it was proven to be true when investigators in her apartment noticed there was graffiti on her apartment walls. And this graffiti had been signed, Reuben Mousy. While the woman never gave them any information about Reuben Mousy, the fact that that graffiti was on her wall in her apartment was enough for investigators to go back to headquarters and enter it into their database. And when they did, they pulled up Reuben Mousy's information. Mousy's real name was Reuben Quintanar. He was a known gang member who had a lengthy criminal history. And police wanted to question him. But because of his lengthy criminal history, they believed him to be dangerous. So they had several police agencies and SWAT go to his house. When they arrived, investigators knocked on the door and it swung open because it had been left ajar. And to their surprise, Reuben Mousy was asleep on the couch in the living room. It's there that they arrested him for auto theft and brought him into the station. According to investigator Ben Lux, he didn't care about the auto theft at all. He told Reuben that he wanted to know who killed Mary Lewis. At first, Reuben wasn't willing to talk. Of course he wasn't. He's a gang member and that's part of gang culture. You don't snitch. Right, it's not surprising at all. But when investigators started pressing Reuben and suggesting that he would be the one held accountable for Mary's death, he opened up. 
As he opened up to investigators, he tells a story about being awoken in the middle of the night on June 20th by several men. He goes on to tell investigators that among the several men that arrived at his home late that night, he only recognized one of them. The one person Reuben knew knew that Reuben was known to get rid of vehicles. And that's why Reuben was chosen that night. Reuben acknowledges that he didn't ask many questions and instead just went willingly with these people. Among the men was someone who called himself Little Man. And Reuben admitted Little Man was intimidating. And in the car ride with Little Man and the other two guys, Little Man told Reuben that he had stabbed a girl named Mary and then showed him her license. The men drove to Alpine, California, and it's here that they cleaned the blood from the car, stripped it, and those parts they were planning to sell for money. After they were done cleaning the car with the rags, they burned them to get rid of any sort of evidence. Investigators listened to Ruben's story, and they were skeptical. Why would he be willing to help clean up and cover a murder that he didn't do? And who is this little man? Is it someone that he made up? And I feel like those are valid questions. If I had heard this story, I wouldn't believe it. But that's when another tip, an anonymous tip, comes in. The anonymous caller told police that it was little man who had killed Mary and that she also knew his first name, Alan. The police ran this information in their system. Alan with the pseudonym Little Man. And wouldn't you know, it came back to a man named Alan David Solomon, who was another local gang member with a long criminal history. I feel like we say it a lot on the Murder Diaries. Our intention is never to focus solely on the offender, but I do think it is important to get to know the full story. And that's why I'm going to just chat a little bit about who Alan David Solomon is or little man, if you will. Alan David Solomon was in fact a little man. He stood five feet, four inches and weighed 115 pounds. Like I said, little man has an extensive criminal history. And I really want to emphasize this. It started back at 13 years old for this guy. He then became an adult and had been convicted several times after the age of 18, twice for receiving stolen property and once for petty theft. He also was convicted in February, just a few months before Mary's murder, of driving in Westminster, California without a license. Although he usually lived with his parents in San Bernardino County, he sometimes stayed with his aunt and uncle in their Westminster home, which would explain the connection. It turns out that Mary's friend Letty was dating Little Man. In fact, they were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time of Mary's murder. This is pretty big information. This is a potentially really big lead. And that lead led investigators to question people surrounding Little Man and Letty, really. As investigators questioned these people affiliated with Little Man and Letty, they soon learned that Little Man had been trying to sell parts of Mary's car to anyone that would buy them. Police Sergeant Mike Hanfield is quoted as saying, He was selling the parts to anyone who was willing to buy them, to friends down there and friends of friends. This all pointed to him as our guy, end quote. With all signs pointing to Little Man as their suspect, they knew they had to bring in Letty for further questioning. 
That's when Letty's brought in. And right away, she sticks with her story that she had told police initially, that Mary left her apartment to go meet up with Richie. And that's when investigators drop a bomb on Letty. They tell her they know who Little Man is, and they know that he's her boyfriend. So she better fess up, or else she too will be held responsible for Mary's death. Letty finally agrees to tell investigators what really happened, and here's what she had to say. And now let's take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. According to Letty, everything she told the police initially was true, at least up until the point of Mary leaving to go meet up with Richie. That's where things change. According to Letty, Mary had wanted to use her phone to call Richie, but Letty wouldn't let her. Letty then called Alan, little man, and said that they were going to come and pick him up. Letty then told three additional guy friends that they would be going to pick them up and then traveling to San Bernardino to pick up little man. So at this point, Letty, little man, and three other guys know the plan to travel to San Bernardino in Mary's car. But the only person who didn't know what was happening was Mary. It turns out that she was still in the back seat and had fallen asleep. At one point while on the freeway, she wakes up and is confused. She wants to know why Letty and these guys are driving her car such a distance. And that's when Letty tells Mary the plan. And Mary wasn't happy. Mary was annoyed. She was pissed, in fact. And who can blame her? Because they wasted her gas, her time. They manipulated her into this horrible situation where she doesn't even know these people. And she just feels like her friend didn't have her back. When they finally pick up little man, Mary convinces Letty to let her drive. It's her car after all. So Letty agrees. And the entire time they're driving from San Bernardino back to Garden Grove, Mary is seething. She's upset and she's not hiding it. She lets every single person in that car know that she's mad. And the person she's mad at most is Little Man. Because she sees Little Man as the reason for this situation. She sees Little Man as the reason her friend manipulated her. You mentioned Mary seething. Can you imagine being in a car with your friend who you're ticked off at and her boyfriend who you probably really don't like right now and you're stuck in this car for an hour to two hours because hashtag California. I'm glad you brought up the tension in the car overall because we did touch on how Mary felt, but we really need to talk about how everyone else in the car felt at the same time. Like I mentioned, Mary was upset about the gas spent on this trek over to San Bernardino. As a result, she was saying that they owed her gas money. In an effort to stop Mary from berating him, Alan gives her $3, but it's not enough. She wants more to cover at least a tank of gas. Unfortunately, Little Man and the rest of the people in the car don't have any money, or they're unwilling to give it to Mary. At some point in the trek from San Bernardino to Garden Grove, someone overhears a little man say, quote, if she doesn't shut up, I'll hurt her, unquote. After what must have felt like an eternity, they finally arrive back in Garden Grove. They drop off one of Letty's friends from the backseat, and at this time, Mary receives a page from her parents. They want to know where she's at because she's clearly late for curfew. And 
This is when that conversation I talked about earlier between Mary and her mother happens, where she tells her mother that she's at a Taco Bell nearby and will be home soon, at least before midnight. And if you remember, Mary's mother says that she felt there was something in Mary's voice that made her seem uncomfortable or irritated. And that mother's intuition wasn't wrong. Clearly, Mary was going through something. And they got back into the car and started driving again. That's when they arrived at another house to drop off one of Letty's friends. Upon their arrival to this new apartment, Mary gets out of her two-door Nissan Sentra. She's driving and has to move her seat to let someone in the back seat out. She's doing that and doesn't notice that little man has also gotten out of the car. He exits the passenger side door and approaches Mary. And that's when he viciously attacks her with his knife. He stabs her over and over again while Letty and another one of her friends looks on. He then gets into Mary's car and drives off without a single word. According to Letty, she had no idea that Mary had gotten stabbed. She knew that little man had hurt her, but she didn't know the extent of Mary's injuries. And she never called the police or ambulance for help because she was worried that if little man could do that to Mary, he could do it to her as well. Before Letty was dropped off at her apartment, it was agreed that none of them would ever talk about this again. And that's when little man and the other men in the vehicle drove off. We all know what happened next because we heard what Ruben had to say and little man's story matches it. That brings us to Thursday, August 10th, 1995. It's about two months after Mary's murder. 19-year-old Alan David Solomon, aka Little Man, is arrested at his parents' San Bernardino home on suspicion of murder and is soon booked into Orange County Jail. Alan's trial started in December of 1996. Regina James, and Mary's three siblings came face to face with Alan and the other witnesses, which included Letty and the other gang members that were in the car as well. It turns out that Letty and the other gang members received immunity for testifying against Little Man. According to Regina, Alan was cold and heartless. He had dead eyes and showed no emotion. The entire Lewis family gave impassioned speeches during the trial. Tears were shed on both sides of the courtroom, which included some of Little Man's family. Robert, one of Mary's older brothers, described his life as, quote, a living hell since he lost his sister. Meanwhile, Little Man sat stoically. He even declined to make a statement except to blame another person for Mary's murder. But Alan's attempt to thwart justice and escape punishment didn't work. Like I mentioned, his ex-girlfriend Letty and another one of his friends riding in Mary's car that night confirmed that he was the one who killed Mary in front of them. Another witness who was not in the car, which I believe was probably Reuben Mousy, uh, said that Little Man bragged about killing Mary. A jury convicted Little Man of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison by Superior Court Judge Richard W. Loosebrink. This Superior Court judge called Little Man a, quote, terrible danger before imposing the maximum sentence and concluded the sentencing by stating that he hoped that Little Man would never be released 
from prison. During the trial, the prosecution made a point to say that little man killed Mary due to a bruised ego because she disrespected him in front of his girlfriend, Letty, and their friends. And I think that is just a clear example of toxic masculinity that we're so often faced with in the cases we cover on this podcast. Fast forward from 1996 to 2014, the Lewis family is outraged to discover that this convicted murderer, Alan David Solomon, aka Little Man, is on Facebook. And on his Facebook account, he has pictures of him and his mother, his arm wrapped around her, and they're smiling. People on there are sharing positive messages with him, and as a whole, it doesn't sit right with them. Mary's sister is quoted as saying, quote, he has all of these people saying all of these positive things about him, and he killed a 16-year-old girl. Her brother, Robert, goes on to say, quote, he's sitting there gloating on Facebook about, quote, chilling and all this stuff. My sister can't do that. It's just thoroughly disgusting that he's able to do that. That's a way they make veiled threats to people. That's a way that they re-victimize their victims. And they just basically say, hey, I killed your loved one. I hurt your loved one. And I'm going to laugh about it, unquote. Hearing that an active prisoner can have a Facebook really got me interested in it. And I have seen TikToks where people in jail, in prison, are recording what they're doing in their day-to-day lives there. And I did look up Facebook's policy on inmates having a profile. It turns out that they're not allowed to have one. If it was created prior to incarceration, uh, they can keep them, but they aren't able to be active during their incarceration. Well, sounds like little man found a way around that. And it's probably because there's been a major influx of illegal cell phones in prison. And as a result, we do get those TikToks. We do get those Facebook posts from people sitting in prison, not really learning from their time in jail. Fast forward two more years to 2016. And that's when the Lewis family petitions the board of parole to keep little man in jail. They end the petition with a quote I'm about to read you. Quote, We, the undersigned, strongly oppose parole for Alan David Solomon. Justice demands he serve the full prison term given to him at the time he was sentenced for this heinous crime. Unquote. As of today, 2021, Alan David Solomon, a.k.a. Little Man, is 41 years old. And he's currently an inmate at the CDCR, otherwise known as the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility in Corcoran, California. It's a California city in Kings County, about four hours north of Garden Grove. The CDCR's website describes their primary focus as, quote, treating inmates who have substance abuse issues, also listing their mission statement as follows, quote, to promote and prepare the offender to leave in better shape than when they arrived, giving them the best chance to never come back, and thus lower the state's recidivism rate, unquote. But I don't want to end today's episode learning about what Alan David Solomon or Little Man is doing in 2021. I don't care. What I want to do is remember the shining light that Mary Irene Lewis was. At 16 years old, she made more of an impression than some people make their whole lives. 
If you remember at the top of the episode, I talked about Mary being an advocate for a young boy who had Down syndrome at her high school. That same boy, when he heard about what happened to Mary, rode his bike from Huntington Beach all the way to Garden Grove to lay flowers at the scene of the crime. And I think that's how Mary should be remembered. So Mary, may you rest in peace. You won't be forgotten. That's where we'll leave it for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.